You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on James Cook. Just a reminder to check out explorerspodcast.com if you want to see maps of Cook's voyages. Otherwise, one note for this episode. Today's show is going to focus around Tahiti. When dealing with the Tahitian people, Cook and his team often used a mix of native names plus names placed on the locals by the British, oftentimes because a person's name was difficult to pronounce or because they wrote out an English pronunciation of the person's name and just butchered it in the process. This means a person or place often has multiple names or spellings. It can be confusing, especially when reading through all the source materials. Know that I will try and use the local names, but if you read books about Cook or his journals, you'll find all sorts of alternatives. It just goes with the territory. Know that I will try to be as consistent as possible throughout the narrative. That is it for notes. Let's get on with the show. We left Cook and the Endeavor arriving in Tahiti on April 12, 1769. The ship had sailed into Matavai Bay, where they were greeted by thousands. Today, we are going to cover Cook's time in Tahiti, including the observation of the transit of Venus and then his exploration of the surrounding islands. We will then take him on his search for Terra Australis. So Cook and the Endeavor had reached Tahiti in good order. A few men had been lost due to accidents, but that was typical for a long ocean voyage. The good news? No one had caught scurvy. A big reason for this was Cook's strict rules about cleanliness on the ship and the crew's diet. Cook's insistence on the men eating certain foods to combat scurvy, such as fresh meat and sauerkraut, had paid off. In this time, Cook's personality had emerged, and it very much reflected his early experiences of his time in Canada during and after the Seven Years' War. Cook was sober, orderly, and meticulous. He prided himself in having good common sense. His ship and crew were a reflection of this. Things were well-run, strict, but fair. The crew respected their captain, and perhaps his background helped him. We can't forget that Cook was a commoner who had worked his way up to the rank of commander. That was a rare thing. I don't doubt the men felt a certain kinship to him, and pride, because of their shared background, and what he had accomplished. And so, as the crew of Endeavour sailed into Matavai Bay and got their first look at the Polynesian paradise, they found it was everything they had been told— There were picturesque mountains and rivers, black volcanic sand beaches, crystal clear waters, thick green forests, and friendly people, which included beautiful women. And so, after instructing his men how they were to engage with the islanders, Cook went about his business. He had to build an observatory so the science guys could record the transit of Venus, which we talked about in our first episode. 
For this, he needed the cooperation of the indigenous people. For Cook, this meant his first task was figuring out who was the boss, something not always apparent among the Tahitians. Tahiti was not ruled by a single person, but by a variety of tribes, and warfare amongst them was not uncommon. It is estimated that Tahiti was home to around 35,000 people when Cook arrived, meaning it was a vibrant, complex, and active society. And thus, from day one, Cook took the time to ingratiate himself with the local rulers. By keeping the island's leaders friendly to the British, it guaranteed them food and water, and at the same time, it helped keep the populace friendly as well. If something egregious happened, say the theft of an important item, Cook could count on the local leaders to get that item back. It was a much better policy than using threats and violence, although such things were always an option. In a nutshell, Cook needed friends and allies he could trust. And I should note that this policy, he felt, would help the British beyond the current mission. When he saw Tahiti, he immediately envisioned it as a base for the Royal Navy. Now for Cook, that did not mean colonizing, aka bringing over farmers and so forth. No, Cook was not a big fan of colonization. He knew what that meant for the locals. Instead, he saw a potential for a partnership benefiting all parties. Another thing I'll mention is that the Islanders had experience dealing with the Europeans. Samuel Wallace had been here two years earlier and spent weeks amongst the Tahitians, and Cook learned that other ships had arrived in the past two years. He thought these were the Spanish, but in reality, it was the French under Louise Antoine de Bourguignville, who was in the process of becoming the first Frenchman to circumnavigate the world. As a result, the natives did, at least to some degree, understand the capabilities of the British. They knew what they could offer in trade and how to conduct such dealings. Anyhow, Cook would go about dealing with the local chiefs, the initial encounters often involving elaborate ceremonies. This included one man named Tutaha, who the British called Hercules. Tutaha was one of the more important local leaders, and Cook took special care to keep the man happy. Another chief was named Oha, who was one of the first to be entertained by Cook. Oha was an old man, and he had been brought on Endeavor and given gifts and treated with great respect. He would respond by sending Cook a hog and fruit. Another of the more colorful leaders was a man named Lycurgus, who brought his entire household with him to meet the English. This was a common thing, the chiefs coming to Matavai Bay to meet the newcomers, and thus set the stage for trade between both parties. Lycurgus took to mimicking the British, how they shook hands and bowed, how they ate, and he loved to row out to the Endeavor in his nice boat and dine with the British officers and gentlemen, copying how they used their cutlery and dishes. Anyhow, Cook went about playing diplomatic games with the locals, all the while never losing sight of the mission. The transit of Venus was scheduled to occur on June 3rd, and he needed to build an observatory. To that end, he selected a place on the northeastern tip of Matavai Bay, right next to a small river flowing into the sea. And Cook wouldn't just build an observatory, but a fort as well. This location is, to this day, called Point Venus. Regarding the location, I have read that Cook worked with the locals to make sure it was alright to build the structure at Point Venus, but other sources say he just picked the spot and started to build. Seeing how Cook operated, it would seem odd that he would make such a decision without working with the natives. No matter, Cook marked off the outlines of the structure, and then he insisted that no one was to cross the lines of the fort, and even posted some marines, to demonstrate how serious he was. Everyone was good with it, or so it seemed. Not long after Cook departed the site, one of the islanders crossed the do-not-cross line, grabbed a musket from one of the soldiers, and ran off. The other marines fired at the man, killing him, and scattering the people who had been milling about. Cook was furious. The last thing he needed was war breaking out between the British and the Tahitians. 
The men all knew that thieving was a potential issue and had been warned not to overreact to such incidents. It was easier to negotiate with the natives to get back stolen items. Artist Sidney Parkinson, who was known to be a gentle and sensitive man, was equally dismayed by the turn of events, saying, quote, What a pity that such brutality should be exercised by civilized people upon unarmed, ignorant Indians. End quote. Cook would work quickly to mend fences with the islanders. He gathered a large group and explained, using sign language, that the man was shot for taking the musket, and he stressed that he wanted to be friends. It would, in the end, mollify the Tahitians, and relations gradually returned to normal. It was not exactly a great start to Cook's venture in Tahiti, but it was going to get worse. Alice Buchan, one of the expedition's artists, suffered an epileptic seizure later that day and fell unconscious. He died a short time later. Unsure of how the natives would react to the British burying a man on their island, Cook elected to bury Buchan's body at sea. This was a good bit of insight on Cook's part, as he didn't want to unwittingly offend the islanders. Despite the difficult start, Cook and his crew would quickly begin to work on the observatory and fort. He had 50 men felling trees and hauling timber and supplies to Point Venus. Some of the locals even helped out, enjoying being a part of the venture. Cook said he walked the Tahitians to each tree he wanted to cut down and made sure they were okay with it. He didn't want to inadvertently cut down some trees that were important to the islanders, a wise move on his part. Once they said yes, he'd give them some minor gifts as a thank you. The fort at Point Venus was completed on April 22nd. It had three high walls, the river on the fourth side. Swivel cannons were mounted on the ramparts. There was a dining tent, living quarters, forge, and magazine, plus a room for the officers and gentlemen of the endeavor. Next, they went about setting up the telescopes and other scientific gear and preparing for the June 3rd transit of Venus. And so, as the fort and observatory were being built, I want to talk about a few other aspects of the expedition. First, regarding the other civilians in the expedition, such as Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander, and the rest of the botanists and artists and naturalists. Well, they would spend a good month swarming all over the island collecting plants, animals, and insect specimens. Sidney Parkinson would make thousands of drawings. It was a trove of information, and Banks was thrilled by it all. My second comment is about the relations between the islanders and the British. For the men of Endeavor, the big attraction was sex. And I'll start by saying that the depiction of the island's women as being willing to swap sex for a nail or two is overly simplistic. The islanders' culture was much more complex than what the Europeans saw. They had their own rituals and habits and customs. Yes, for some women, sex was very much a transaction, but for others, it was akin to a relationship. And as time passed, many of the men took what they would call temporary wives for their time on Tahiti. And some of these relationships would become quite serious. By the way, I've mentioned that nails were important trade goods in Tahiti, and that is true as the islanders had figured out how valuable iron was. So getting nails, or any iron, by any means, whether via sex or trade or stealing, was important to the locals. I should note that the interaction with the natives was a constant process as people were always arriving at Matavai Bay to meet with the British. And for some of these visitors, it would be a reunion of sorts, as they knew some of the crewmen of the Endeavor as they had been here two years earlier. In late April, the British were visited by a neighboring leader, a woman named Obadiah, who everyone called the Queen of the Island, although she was not actually the Queen of the Island, just an important chief. As I said, there was no single ruler. Anyhow, it was said that Robert Molyneux, the ship's master, had been the lover of Queen Obadiah on the first visit, and the Queen, who was judged to be about 40 years old, took a liking to naturalist Joseph Banks during this visit, but Banks begged off the advances of the woman, citing his fiancée back in England. 
although we should note that it didn't stop Banks from carrying on with a long string of young ladies during his time on the island. Regarding these encounters with the natives, artist Sidney Parkinson was critical of how the men, just because they were away from England, eagerly pursued their relationships, writing, quote, Most of our ship's company procured temporary wives amongst the natives, with whom they occasionally cohabitated, an indulgence which even many reputed virtuous Europeans allowed themselves in uncivilized parts of the world, with impunity, as if a change of place altered the moral turpitude of fornication. End quote. Anyhow, I do want to note that the relations between the British and the islanders is an important dynamic of our story, but we shouldn't dwell on all the sex stuff too much, even if it is interesting. So, as time passed, the fort and observatory were built, the botanists collected their samples, and the artists drew illustration after illustration. And while relations with the locals was mostly good, there were some issues that arose for Cook and the expedition. The first thing I'll mention was an outbreak of venereal disease, the result of all the relations between the crewmen and the islanders. At one point, 24 seamen and 9 marines were diagnosed with the disease. As his crew had been vetted prior to departing England, Cook, incorrectly, blamed the Spanish for infecting the natives, who were now in turn infecting his men. The interesting twist here was that it wasn't actually venereal disease that was infecting the Europeans. The disease the men were suffering from was yaws, a chronic bacterial infection that affects the skin, bone, and cartilage. It is highly infectious and common in tropical environments. Another issue, as always, was drinking. At one point, Henry Jeffs, the butcher, got drunk, and he tried to buy Chief Lycurgus's stone axe. When the offer was refused, the butcher threatened to cut Lycurgus's wife's throat. Jeffs was flogged the next day, the chief and his wife present for the punishment. A third growing issue was thieving. This seemed to go in waves, and it frustrated Cook to no end. Much of it could be handled, but in early May, there was one robbery that was potentially a disaster, and that was when an astronomical quadrant was stolen. This was critical to the upcoming observations. Cook was furious about the theft, and he seized one of the chiefs as ransom for the instrument's return. The thief was identified, but it turned out he and his friends had taken the quadrant apart. Cook would thus march from house to house with armed men, retrieving each piece. Once all the parts were back in his possession, Cook released his hostage, and his astronomers would manage to reassemble the quadrant in time for the transit of Venus. Many of these problems were the result of both sides getting a bit tired of each other. It's human nature. We start getting on each other's nerves and get frustrated by the eventual misunderstandings that arise from being in close contact for an extended period. Anyhow, towards the end of May, Cook became concerned about the weather. More and more, it had been stormy and cloudy. At one point, it rained for 24 hours straight. Worried about how the weather would affect the upcoming observation, Cook decided to set up two additional observatories. One was on York Island, just west of Tahiti, and the second was on a tiny island where the French had anchored at the previous year. And so the entire team would hold their breath as June 3rd came around. When the men woke that morning, it was perfect. Cook would write it was, quote, as favorable to our purpose as we could wish, end quote. A challenge the men faced that day was the heat, the temperature measured as hot as 119 degrees Fahrenheit, or 48 degrees Celsius. As the transit would need to be observed for nearly six hours, it would make for a long, long day. So let us talk about the transit of Venus. As I said in our first episode, it's basically Venus passing between the Earth and the Sun. There are four stages. The first is when Venus begins to touch the outside rim of the Sun. The second phase is when Venus is completely within the Sun's disk, but still touching the outer rim. In the third phase, Venus crosses the Sun and touches the opposite rim. 
The final phase is when Venus exits the Sun, but is still touching the outer rim. And so the transit of Venus began. The astronomy team was ready, and the weather was good. And so the observation of the transit of Venus, which started at 9 hours, 25 minutes, and 42 seconds in the morning, began. It ended at 3 hours, 14 minutes, and 8 seconds in the afternoon. And the results? Well, let's just say they were problematic. Venus was not this sharp disk against the Sun as they had anticipated, but a dusky dot with obscured edges. It was originally thought there were storms on Venus that caused this murky effect, but in reality, it was something called the black drop effect. The smearing of Venus is caused by turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere. The black drop effect would be observed all over the world, and it would, mostly, make the observation of the transit of Venus a failure. The Royal Society would eventually blame Charles Green, the chief astronomer, for the problems, but there was really nothing anyone could have done. We will talk more about the issues with the transit of Venus when we get Endeavour home, which means a later episode. But you know what? Cook had done his job. No matter what anyone else had thought about the transit, he had gotten the men to Tahiti and completed the first phase of his mission. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. (gasps) No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The transit of Venus was complete. Cook now could turn to the rest of his mission. He had two primary objectives, head south to search for Terra Australis and explore New Zealand. But he also had a general poke-around-and-see-what-you-can-find directive from the Admiralty. But before all of this, Cook allowed his men to relax and recuperate after all the work they had done to get to this point. And then they began to prepare for the departure from Tahiti. As for Cook, he did some exploring and surveying. On June 26th, He sailed the Penance, which is a small boat usually propelled by sail or oars, or both, around the island of Tahiti, mapping its coastline and doing some exploring of the interior. For this, Cook brought with him a crew, plus Joseph Banks, as well as an islander named Tupaya. And with that, I want to talk a bit about this man. Tupaya was a kind of priest, originally from the nearby island of Reati, and had been part of Queen Obadiah's retinue. Tupaya had been forced to flee from his home some years earlier, after it had been invaded by warriors from Bora Bora. The man had a vast knowledge of the surrounding islands and peoples, and was a talented artist. He had befriended Samuel Wallace on his voyage two years earlier, and he had attached himself to the British at this time, primarily through an association with Joseph Banks. Tupaya would be a translator, navigator, and artist for the expedition. Some of his drawings, by the way, have even survived to this day. Anyhow, Cook and Banks would set off to explore Tahiti, 
to Paya as their guide. Surprisingly, Cook didn't take any of the Marines with him. For about a week, the men explored, mapping the coast and putting ashore to meet the island's people, many of whom had already been to Matavai Bay. This excursion offered some great insight to the island. Cook and Banks got to see firsthand the different peoples and kingdoms, and they saw evidence of the warfare that plagued the island. One time they came to a village and found a board with the jawbones of 15 men fastened to it, a victory trophy of sorts for a local ruler. Cook also describes finding some large and impressive marais, which were religious sites. He described some of them in detail, including one with a step pyramid of stone and coral. In early July, preparations were begun in earnest to continue the mission. Endeavor had been at sea for nearly a year, and she needed to be scraped and painted. Rotting wood was replaced, and leaks caulked. Plus, the ship needed to take on water and food. Now, a couple of things about these final weeks in Tahiti. First, while the interactions between the islanders and the British remained cordial, there were signs the relationship was fraying. Thieving became more and more of a problem as the islanders got bolder and better at pilfering stuff from the crew. Amongst the islands stolen were a musket, a pair of pistols, a sword, and a rake. Cook's patience was being severely tested, and he responded by having his men seize 22 native canoes and threatened to put them to the torch if all the stolen items weren't returned. It was the most extreme position Cook had taken with the natives, but it showed how frustrated he was getting. In the end, the British got a few minor items back, but nothing much. Cook, whose temper was fearsome when unleashed, would hold in his rage. It wasn't worth angering the Tahitians. Remember, he envisioned Tahiti as a British naval base, and he wanted to depart the island on good terms. The second thing I want to mention goes back to the relationship between the men of the ship and the island's women. Well, on July 9th, two of the expedition's marines disappeared. Both had fallen in love with local women, and with the departure of Endeavour imminent, they decided they would rather stay on the island rather than return to England. Thus, they had fled into the mountains with their lovers. Cook, as you can imagine, was not going to let any of his men desert. As the islanders were complicit in the desertions, Cook took the drastic step of detaining several of the local chiefs, including Queen Obadiah. The next day, a group of men headed ashore to bring back the two wayward marines. However, the natives got wind of what the British were up to, and they seized and disarmed the group. There were no injuries. And so each side had their own hostages. What was next? Well, Cook decided a show of strength was in order, and he sent another party ashore, this time of heavily armed marines. That would end the matter. They would come back with the deserters, and all the hostages on both sides would be released. The two deserters would be flogged for their actions. And so as Cook got ready to depart, he could look back on the previous months with satisfaction. He had gotten Endeavor to Tahiti in good order. He had surveyed the island, helped the botanists do their thing, and set up the observatory to study the transit of Venus. He had also kept pretty good relations with the local people, although he had gotten pretty close to unleashing his fury on them a few times. The truth is that Cook looked at the islanders sort of like a father would his children. These were mostly friendly people, but they lacked leadership and guidance, and Cook had seen himself as that wise and powerful father figure. Anyhow, the British would finally depart Tahiti on August 9, 1769. With them was Tupaya, who was joining the expedition at the invitation of Joseph Banks. Tupaya brought with him his own servant, a boy named Tiata. Cook was not thrilled at the idea of bringing a native on the ship, but he realized that Tupaya's skills as a navigator and translator may be valuable in the future. From Tahiti, Cook's mission was to go south and search for Terra Australis, but first he elected to do some exploring of the region's islands. Endeavour would head west, coming into contact with the various islands. This included Bora Bora and Raiatee, 
the latter the home of Dupaya. Today we call these islands, which include Tahiti, the Society Islands. There are 14 of them. At Reati, the native people were initially aggressive towards the English, but with Tupaya interpreting, the two peoples eventually came to an understanding and all was well. On Bora Bora, the islanders were enthusiastic to trade and interact with the British. No matter where they went, Banks and Solander would go ashore and collect specimens for their growing collection. And Sidney Parkinson broke out his sketchbook and recorded all that he could see. Also, Cook would inquire with the natives about any lands to the south. No one could give him a firm answer. Now, not every island proved to be friendly to the British, and Cook steered Endeavour clear of any locations where the natives were threatening. Once Endeavour sailed past the Society Islands, it was time to turn south and search for Terra Australis. We have talked about Terra Australis on this podcast on numerous occasions. The idea of a hidden southern continent dated back nearly 2,000 years. The theory of Terra Australis was that the land of the northern hemisphere should be balanced by the land in the southern hemisphere. No one had ever been to Terra Australis, although men had claimed to have had glimpses of fog-shrouded lands to the south. As I've noted, Cook was skeptical about the existence of the mythical southern continent, but Joseph Banks was a great believer. Most of the crew, by the way, did not share Banks' enthusiasm. This meant that they were heading back into the cold. And so Endeavour would sail south, the temperature dropping day after day. Much of the livestock on the ship, pigs and chickens, would succumb to the cold and lack of proper fodder. Produce from Tahiti, such as yams and plantains, began to spoil. On August 25th, there was a small celebration marking the one-year anniversary of departing England. A big piece of Cheshire cheese was taken from the stores, as well as barrels of porter, and hidden stores of rum were broken out. Banks would say, quote, We lived like Englishmen and drank to the health of our friends in England. End quote. The men continued to find ways to drink too much, to their end. In the celebration, the bosun's mate, John Reading, drank 30 ounces of raw rum. That's one and a half imperial pints. He was found dead the next day. Cook and Endeavour would continue south, but the weather grew worse and worse each day. Cook reported strong gales and heavy squalls of rain, and no sign of land. A cloud bank here and there offered hope, but they were nothing in the end. Cook's order said he was to sail to 40 degrees south in search of Terra Australis, and on September 2nd, he had reached that point. He had traveled more than 2,400 kilometers, or 1,500 miles, from Tahiti, and he had found nothing, and the waters to the south held no promise of finding land anytime soon. Here, at the 40-degree south mark, is where ships encounter what is called the Roaring Forties, strong westerly winds generally found between the latitudes of 40 and 50 degrees south. They are nasty and dangerous, and best avoided, even to this day. And thus the search for Terra Australis was mostly over. Cook, ever the stickler for orders, had completed his mission by reaching 40 degrees south. He wasn't going to go any further, not in this weather, later writing, quote, We had no prospects of meeting land, and the weather was so very tempestuous, I laid aside this design. End quote. Now, Cook didn't quite give up his search for Terra Australis, instead sailing along the 40 degrees south mark. He went in a circle, first going east, then northwest, and then southwest, even crossing his own path more than once. But there was no land to be found, and thus Cook would order Endeavour to set a new course, this towards New Zealand, the land first visited by Abel Tasman more than a hundred years earlier. No European had returned since Tasman, but that was about to change. And I should note that it was possible that New Zealand was part of Terra Australis. Tasman had speculated such a thing, but we shall see. So with Endeavour pushing northwest towards New Zealand, that is where we will leave things for today. 
Cook had, thus far, completed two facets of his mission. He had successfully reached Tahiti and allowed the scientific team to observe the transit of Venus. The results were mixed, but that was not the fault of Cook or anyone else on the expedition. Cook had also surveyed Tahiti, established decent relations with the natives, and then mapped some of the surrounding islands. His team had collected thousands of specimens and documented the people of these islands. He had then proceeded south in search of Terra Australis, finding nothing but cold and wind and disappointment. Next time, we will get Cook to New Zealand. After that, the man will freelance a bit and in the process become the first European to reach the eastern shores of Australia. So join us next time for the fun. That is it for today. Thank you for joining us. I hope you and your friends and family are doing well. Please take care. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, including two film podcasts, Movies That Made Me and Movie Therapy. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.